This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Five arrests in Jerusalem. Israeli police arresting ultra-Orthodox Jews accused of spitting at Christian visitors to uh, Jerusalem. Pictures that went around the world. And it is 50 years to the day since the Yom Kippur War. We will be speaking to a highly decorated veteran of that conflict. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12, usually in Tel Aviv. Two Jews on the News from Keshet Podcast. I feel for you, my friends, because when you thought about doing this podcast with an Israeli uh, journalist, you said to yourself, I'll see her once every two years when she comes to London. Little did you know that I would come, but I would never leave. And you so what you thought stay away. would just be this visit where you'd have to see me once for a polite coffee and not for me to call you every five minutes. <laughs> I am driving you mad. You're, you can't wait to see me leave. But you have to know that this is these are the days of Chola Moed, which means the days kind of sandwiched between the first and the last days of Sukkot, the holy days of Sukkot. Uh, and that means that most of the Israelis are on vacation. Even the prime minister was on vacation. And that's why you're suffering me for a while. And it slightly feels as if most of the Israelis are on vacation right here. <laughs> You'll need that's where it feels. No, it feels timely because, of course, this is the season of guests with Ushpiz in that tradition and visitors to the sukkah, the temporary booths in which Jews are meant to dwell. And we've certainly been living that narrative <laughs> with the visitors uh, who visit. And, you know, it's an eight-day festival, so here we still are. Um, no, I don't want anyone to feel there is even the slightest uh, reluctance. We have enjoyed it. We had, I think we had a little tube ride today and uh, introducing you to the delights of some of the eccentrics who ride I have on been the to Jubilee London line. before I met you, Jonathan, we, just once or twice. Have. But yes, we you have. did and act you like the have. tourist, you did, you, the tourist guide. This is the tube. You walk down here. I, I was doing that a bit. But the other thing is, of course, as always with visiting uh, visitors to London, you've already outgunned me on the theatre visits. You've seen things I haven't seen. You're now recommending things to me. So it's been um, a very good and uh, a full week um, for the whole Levy clan. Um, and of course, I met the next generation at the weekend. That was lovely. So it's been great. And um, London has really rolled out the red carpet for you because the sun has been shining. Yeah, Soon I, I wanted to thank you for the working are... on the weather for me. That was really, really nice of you. Very nice. Yeah. No, we, as you know, Jews do control the, all these matters. So I just had to have a word in the right places. And we were there. Um, so it means that both of us have been, in a way, watching from afar the events in your home country and indeed your home city of Jerusalem. And it'd be nice to say these have brought seasonal cheer, but quite the opposite. Yes. And what made the headlines all around the world uh, was the story, and you mentioned this uh, right at the top, of five uh, ultra-Orthodox who were arrested for spitting at Christian Pilgrims. This is a small group, but obviously uh, it's these are ugly pictures. And this is not happening for the first time. There's actually a rise in these kinds of incidents. The old city is quite crowded in the week of uh, Sukkot with tens of thousands of Jewish worshippers. And we have suffered persecution. We 
Jews have suffered persecution for thousands of years. We, I think this is pretty obvious, but we need to show respect for other uh, religions. This is just not something that is making Israel look uh, good in, in, in the eyes of the world. I mean, well, this has come up before, and we've talked about it before. The, the, the point you just made there is a, is a very sort of evocative one about Jews suffering persecution, because it's not just persecution in the sense of legal discrimination and so on. The memories people have of living in the shtetl or living in Eastern Europe, in Russia or Poland, were those sort of day-to-day -day humiliations. And there's something about spitting. It's not violent in the sense of you're not, you know, wounded afterwards physically. But there's something that is so kind of visceral about the, the psychological wound that is inflicted, the indignity of it. And one feels as if it's the sort of stories our grandparents and great-grandparents relayed about back in the old country, you know, our, our non-Jewish neighbours would spit at us as a mark of total humiliation. So there's it's something very, very charged about the just the idea of this. The sort of levels of it are, are are interesting to probe. One is this relationship. This again was what we, I think, you and I got into last time this happened. Was there's this important relationship now between Israel and particularly Christians? It's a big part of the American-Israeli strategic relationship. People always think old-fashioned that the bedrock of the Israeli-U.S. relationship is the American-Jewish vote, as it were. Wrong. It's evangelical Christians who have this relationship with what they would call the Holy Land and the notion of Israel as a Jewish homecoming. A lot of them feel it's prophesied in Christian texts and scriptures. Mm -hmm. This is going directly at that when they see fellow Christians abused in this way. What does it do to that relationship? And then the last thing is the bit that I found really weird, which is why do they do it? I mean, the people caught doing it. And if we got a little clue on that this week when a man called Elisha Yered, who's from the absolute far right, uh, the Otsma Yehudit Party, Jewish Power Party, associated with uh, Itzamar Ben-Gvir. He's a former spokesman for a member of the Knesset, saying that this is something that Jews have always done. The customer spitting near churches or monasteries is an ancient Jewish tradition. And he added, there's even a blessing that Jews are supposed to say when seeing a church uh, you know, pr apparently the blessing praises God for not immediately punishing, I'm quoting now, idol worshippers for their wicked deeds. I don't, I mean, it sounds bogus to me. It's not anything I've ever heard of. But there's obviously, there's more here than just a sort of one-off act by a few people caught on film. There's a sort of underpinning to this. And I, you know, I think it's alarming. Yes. By the way, we should mention that uh, Alicia Yered himself is a suspect in a story of a, a murder of a Palestinian a few weeks ago. So really not a lovely gentleman in any way. But also we should mention when we're having this discussion, Israel is committed to the freedom of all uh, religions. It is, is enshrined in Israel's Declaration of Independence. I think we mentioned that declaration a few weeks ago. And that is important. Israel needs to show, should be in that regard, uh, a very open and accepting of of other religions and and he needs to show it. I think this is extremely damaging story in so many levels. Yeah. Um, I wonder uh, what action, if any, the government will take. What action will the security minister, one Itamar Ben-Gvir, take? Yes. Yeah, so he already this? said that he condemns it, but he doesn't think that every offense is criminal behavior and he doesn't think that they should have been arrested for it. Right. So he thinks the people who did the spitting should be allowed to get away with it. He, doesn't, he doesn't think spitting is nice. That's what he said. 
Yeah. And and I, I do feel the need to say this is not the majority of Israelis who behave this way. It doesn't matter. There's enough to have five people doing it on camera for this to have such a devastating effect on, on the whole country's image. So this episode drops Friday, October 6th, uh, 2023, exactly 50 years to the day uh, that uh, Syria and Egypt surprised Israel in what became the Yom Kippur War, opened on Yom Kippur, uh, the holiest uh, uh, day on the Jewish calendar. And what also became, I think it's safe to say, the most dramatic collective trauma uh, that Israel society ever went through. And we are 50 years exactly uh, since that day. Yeah, it's often described as a near-death experience for Israel. It came close to, I mean, the word existential is now overused, but at the time, there was a genuine fear that Israel was about to be invaded and no longer exist. It would be snuffed out mm -hmm. just six years after this huge and unexpected victory in the 1967 Six-Day War, Israel caught unawares. Uh, we talked about it a lot with Dame Helen Mirren when she was on, because she's play, playing famously Golda Meir in the new movie of that title. And we talked about Yom Kippur and her memories of it, which, she, you know, she had memories of it. I have to say, you know, you mentioned this massive uh, collective tra traumatic event for Israel. I think it went wider than that. I think it was a traumatic moment for the wider Jewish world. And I think quite soon after you and I began this podcast, I, I mentioned to you some of the memories even I, I had as a six-year-old child in synagogue that day. I mean, we should explain to people who, who are perhaps not steeped in this that when we say this attack was on Yom Kippur, it is the one day of the year where even pretty non-observant, non-religious Jews, a lot of them fast, a lot of them don't have the radio or TV on, they are in the synagogue, it might be the only day of the entire year they go to synagogue, no one is sort of on alert, you know, they're not at work, they're not in their cars, etc. That goes for diaspora too, and a lot of these are stories that have been sort of passed down to me from, you know, my late dad and mum, but the story that, you know, that they have passed on was the synagogue, a kind of, you know, whisper a kind of shiver collectively went through everyone there mm -hmm. as word leaked out that Israel was under attack. And it was an orthodox synagogue where people weren't meant to have the radio on or have the TV news on when they got home. And so for that day, this is a line, you know, I, I, I credit to my late dad, but he said it was the one day when the apikoiris, the non-observer, the non-religious Jew was king because the the few Jews in, the, in that community where I grew up you know, who were plugged into the news, suddenly everyone was gathering around them for information. Mm. What had they heard? What was happening? And the mood in the synagogue, uh, as described to me by my parents and other people, and across the Jewish world was suddenly the prayers acquired this other edge of urgent pleading that Israel, you know, we're talking 30 years after the Holocaust, that's uh, all, uh, would not be extinguished. And this, you know, this intense mood. So I think the trauma was definitely there, obviously, in Israel, but it resonated and reverberated mm -hmm. around the wider Jewish world. Yeah. And when you add to that, and of course, this is a coincidence that, that as we are commemorating those 50 years, Israel is once again torn apart or, or, or discussing this existential question, but the enemies are not external. And the, the strife is internal. And it makes for that 
you know, all the more important. Of course, we could have been sitting here with this judicial overhaul saying Israel's commemorating 47 years and not 50, but that sort of number, which is has its own significance and symbolism added into Israel going through this crisis right now, I think is something that we should we should definitely notice in the national mood as we are commemorating uh, 50 years. To the- yeah, absolutely right. I mean, somber mood, obviously then, but a somber mood now. And that word existential that was used 50 years ago has been used again. And in a way, I know people overuse it rhetorically. But in terms of using it with sincerity and conviction, 2023-1973. And as you say, the reason being this time, not external enemies massing on the borders, but rather a challenge and divisions from within, all of which um, we're going to talk about with our very special guest. There could quite possibly be no better person to talk to about the effects of the Yom Kippur War on Israel and the Israeli psyche than Yuval Neriya, who fought in that war and received the Medal of Valor, Israel's highest decoration, for his actions as the tank commander on the Sinai front. He then went on to become one of the founders of the peace movement, Shalom Achshav, or Peace Now. The focus of his professional life has been researching trauma. He is a professor of medical psychology at Columbia University Medical Center and director of trauma and PTSD program at the New York State Psychiatric Institute and Columbia University Department of Psychiatry. Yuval, we are so uh, happy to have you on Unholy today. Happy to be here. Thank you for talking to us about all of this. I mean, obviously, we're focusing now because when people hear this, it will be 50 years to the day since the start of the war. For us, it means we're deliberately making a choice to go back and think about 1973. But I'm wondering if for you, this is not a memory you have to consciously bring back. And whether or not you, if this is something, whether you think of that war every single day. Um, no, I, I, I cannot say that. But um, what I did with my life is kind of transforming myself to somebody who initially uh, was bothered by his own memories and eventually uh, became focused on other people's memories. But I can say that I'm thinking about traumas almost every day of my life, whether Mm. it's current traumas or old traumas, you know, depends on, on the topic. Yeah, We want to go into that and your research and your work on that. I still want to kind of linger on the war and you can tell us about, can you tell us about your experiences and that Medal of Honor that you received? Can, can you tell us a little about what, what happened uh, in those fateful days? No, I, I can try. It's a long story. It's, it's a story of a very intensive 12 days in October 1973. I was a very young lieutenant in terms of my military rank and you know, sitting with my company as a deputy commander of of, of a tank company uh, very close to the Suez Canal on the northern front. And as such was my soldiers and myself and, you know, and, and the other companies of this um, battalion, battalion number nine, which is kind of a famous armored battalion in Israel. You know, we were directly engaged with Egyptians and missile fire, artillery, commando units already 
on the east side of the Suez Canal when we approached, you know, the outpost. So, yeah, I mean, myself and my fellow uh, soldiers, we, we, we got hit very, very severely. In fact, the entire battalion uh, was so demolished in the first day to the point that it stopped to be existed after 24 hours, which is actually unheard of in the military history of Israel. Just remind us, well, two things. I mean, how old you were at this point? I was 21 years old. So you're just 21 years old. And I can tell you're sharing the the sort of uh, achievement with everyone who you served with, but it's a rare honour, the Medal of Valor. I mean, hardly any people in the whole history of the country have received it. So I know that you want to be sort of modest about it, but can you explain exactly what it was that you did that meant that you got this extraordinary decoration? There are two ways to look at it. You know, I hate to look at it through the perspective of um, the military or or even, you know, popular journalism. I never felt that it tells my story kind of the right way. I fought for 12 days until I was injured. I moved from one company to the other. I replaced many, many tanks that were um, either heated or otherwise damaged or stuck in, in, in the mud uh, near the Suez Canal. I, so my problem was that I didn't allow myself really to stop doing that until I was injured, uh, which kind of was kind of a brutal, you know, shutdown of this tendency. Mm. And the question why I didn't allow myself a break or even to say, okay, that's enough, is simply a question that I am not able to answer until this day. I mean, mm. I think that at least part of, of me was so desperate, you know, to continue. Part of it is guilt. I, I didn't feel that I have the uh, freedom, the liberty uh, to say enough. I grew up to to a family of Israeli sabras, both my, my father and my mother born in Israel. Both of them were in the military, although both of them were on the left side politically the Labour Party uh, mostly, or I would say even the leftist part of the Labour Party. And I think that at least my mother, they actually suffered from the same syndrome. I mean, they they had kind of a strange relationship with the military that I had for many years. In fact, despite the fact that I was injured in the Yom Kippur, I was already going back to the military to a reserve position, ended up a battalion commander in the Lebanon war, you know, and that, and I did that in parallel to my studies of psychology. Uh, so I did like 100 days a year, Miluim, which is kind of reserve um, training. And, and it's something that I, especially now when I was, you know, I'm old enough to look critically at my life, I really don't understand <laughs> You know, this this kind of a sense of obligation, it's not even commitment, it's being obliged to do something mm. that you know it's bad to you or it's not helpful, that resemble relationship with, you know, Israel is something that we need to defend, kind of Zionism 
and took me a lot of time really to recover from that. So talk us through that recovery because it connects to maybe personal trauma, definitely a collective national trauma of this surprise attack on the holiest of days and the effect, the ramifications on Israeli society. And then you kind of taking this forward to make it the most important part of your, of your professional right. life. So I always looked for ways to distinguish myself from the kind of military chapters, either through political activity, eventually becoming a clinician, a clinical psychologist, treating patients with a host of uh, problems, and eventually completing my PhD and becoming a researcher, a full-time researcher. But with always the same, you know, wish or, or desire to be truthful with kind of the heavy load of symbols or, or mythologies that Israel kind of project on its youth, right? So, so for me, the first attempt was to write a book on Yom Kippur War named Ash uh, Fire, which I very critically really looked at, you know, this culture and the meaning of, of, you know, being thrown into the Yom Kippur War, which, which basically was, you know, a series of mistakes done by both kind of military agencies, especially intelligence, but not only and the political uh, leadership of Israel that allowed us as Israelis to get into this war in a very unprepared and kind of misleading way. So in my book, initially, I tried to, to look at all of that critically. And, and later, you know, when I grew up into clinical psychology, first as an attempt to understand myself, and my fellow, you know, people, uh, and later really to go after really basic research and uh, more substantial research, I, I thought this is, this is almost like a respectable commitment or mission that really altered my experience, my life into kind of a better and better way of living. Can I just understand one thing, which is, to somebody like me who has not served in a war, war itself, whichever kind of war, would lead, it seems to me, naturally to some kind of post-traumatic stress. But I'm interested to know if there's an extra element in this case, because very often when people speak about the Yom Kippur War, even when they're talking about those who were not in combat, mm. they describe it as a kind of collective trauma. The fact that it was a surprise the fact that it was on the holiest day of the year, the fact that it led to this kind of, uh, you know, Yoni and I have been talking about earlier, this kind of near-death experience as if Israel itself yes. was going to be extinguished. So I'm interested to know from your point of view what effect those elements had on a 21-year-old like you and people in the field in addition to just the fact that it was a war. I mean, that obviously would be traumatic anyway. But was it, as it were, worse for you and your fellow soldiers, that it was, as I say, a surprise, a holy day of the year, and that feeling that this could be it for the entire country? That's a very good question. A couple of, you know, things that I would like to comment on. First of all, there is a difference between the collective trauma and the personal trauma. Personal trauma can be 
assessed, measured, and eventually treated by professionals uh, in the form of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorder, depression, etc. So, and and only a minority of the people exposed to trauma are eventually going to develop significant psychopathology or significant symptoms that deserve treatment. And that's that's true across nations, across cultures, and across traumatic events. But what made, I think, the Yom Kippur to be defined like a collective trauma, and and you can see, I mean, I, I think Holocaust, you know, uh, mm. certainly deserve to be uh, qualified as such as well, other genocides, you know, across the world. I mean, where the impact is so big and so difficult to comprehend, really, and appear on different levels, you know, different organizational levels and different societal levels, then you can see a collective trauma. And the impact of collective trauma, and I think you perhaps you guys can attest to that, each of you from different perspectives, I'm sure you need, and you, Jonathan, from the work you do, collective traumas is bring, you know, large publics or large groups into a point that, you know, that cultures are changed and political systems are changed, art, um, prose, poetry uh, are becoming kind of central to this shift. Um, and it's true. I don't think that there is a society, and you can see now 50 years to, to this war, there are the long-term consequences for each of the people that were involved, like me, like others, but there is also a sense that an entire nation is suddenly becoming almost obsessed to dig in into this wound in an effort that can be fruitful or, or not fruitful. So, but let's talk about, you're saying digging in, and of course, all of Israel has been digging into this memory, mainly because of that kind of symbolism that it's been 50 years, but also because Israel now feels like maybe, a lot of the Israelis feel right. like we have reached the existential question of a different kind. Uh, whereas, of course, Yom Kippur was an external threat. This is an internal turmoil that that Israel is is engulfed in. Is it then helpful if we talk about things like collective trauma to dig into that, you know, past trauma as a nation or not, it, where we are now? And I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I would like you to talk about the connection between then and now. So first of all, and I may surprise you, you know, as, as an expert in, in post-trauma, um, I, I am not a big fan of digging in. Mm-hmm. I am not a big fan of like, taking another look and another look and another look at what hurts us in life. I am actually believe that we need to encourage recovery process, resilience process uh, sooner than later, rather than to go back and to uh, look at weaknesses, you know, shame, full experiences, etc. So on the personal level, as, as a clinician, I because I think that Organisms, whether it's human beings or horses or dogs, uh, both of them I love dearly, are built to overcome adversities, to leave traumas behind them. This is our tendency. And actually not 
I mean, to learn a little bit about what's, what can be dangerous or not, but not to be obsessed in that. Now, as countries or big groups, right, I believe we, we cannot do that. And especially in a country like Israel, where it's the same scenario each time again and again. You know what? If you think about it, what caused Yom Kippur War, Israelis were those who actually kept on saying no to every attempt to address some of the concerns that raised by Sadat, who was, you know, the, the leader in Egypt at this time. And eventually he had no choice when put together this very, very uh, ambitious and unrealistic plan to attack Israel from both sides, both the north and south, and, you know, to achieve quite a bit. Although, remember, that at the end, Israel not only survived, but also ended this war with some nice victories, right? Yeah. So let's respond to Jonathan's uh, previous question. As a soldier, I, I didn't feel that we are going to fail during the war. I didn't feel that we are all going to die or to, to fall in captive. And that, you know, I, I never felt it. And I think many of the soldiers didn't, which I think explain why we eventually ended up kind of victorious. Now, this is not possible. We cannot live, you know, until we solve this repetitive kind of compulsion to stay with, you know, territories and to neglect, you know, any more realistic suggestion about compromise, peace negotiations. I think we are, as a country, we are going to experience and re-experience those type of failures that originated by this political problem for, for many, many years. So I think that's the origin why, you know, as a society, we, we still find himself so conflicted among us and, and never have a way really to talk to each other. That is so interesting. I, I think we're going to want to come on to that in a moment about the current situation and, and that notion that it's somehow linked with the... Mm-hmm. Other one, but before we leave that, I, I know you were involved in an organization that was keen to establish a center about the Yom Kippur War. And you were quoted right. three or four years ago saying that um, the story of this war has yet to be fully told. Despite the length of time since the war, for many, the memories are still fresh and painful. And I want to just pick up on that notion of it not being fully told because. Right. You know, I'm really aware of a lot of cultural stuff, obviously, about 1967. I would even say about the 1982 Lebanon War with, you know, Waltz with Bashir, big uh, internationally acclaimed film and so on. What is it about the 1973 war that meant, and you were only speaking three or four years ago, that that story had not been fully told? Is there some, whether there is some shame around it? But you tell me. Um, it's a very good question. And, and honestly, I think that in the last couple of years, since I gave this interview, there is a lot that has been published in terms of more books, both, you know, military history and, um, and otherwise kind of an attempt to, to learn about what's really happened. But what I meant is something, that go beyond that, that, you know, touching upon who, who we are as 
Israelis in particular or, or kind of Jews in, in general, kind of a, a tiny group of people, right, that call them the Jews that are repeatedly, historically repeatedly found themselves overwhelmed by, by efforts to attack them many times. But not only that, you know, to suppress culture, you know, anti-Semitism, etc. So, so I think that makes us especially sensitive to any criticism. And we are not allowed psychologically, I think, to, to look back or to look inside at who we are. And our ability to self-reflect is, I think, limited by the fact that we always need to be ready ready to run away, ready to fight back, ready to defend ourselves, ready to apologize, ready to whatever. So that makes us people with no, no luxury or no, no opportunity for sit on the couch and really look back honestly about what we did well and what we haven't uh, done well. For example, right? And because Yom Kippur War was so, the magnitude was so, you know, overwhelming, that's a good example of, of something that we are yet to be able to deal with. I'm interested, Yuval, because you sound much more optimistic when talking about a personal trauma and dealing with that than about a nation dealing with its bigger trauma. And I kind of want to ask something about the personal, and that is your sort of PTSD lab. And if you could walk us through, we're not people of science, but can you tell us about developments made in the scientific world about dealing, I mean, detecting PTSD, dealing with it, treating it in a way that could maybe some, you know, shed some optimism on this, on this conversation? No, absolutely. So post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is, is a common consequence of trauma, of trauma exposure. Mm -hmm. Can be war or disaster or sexual abuse uh, or even car accident. And psychiatrists came out with, with a good enough definition of that. And the problem is that even the most effective treatment for PTSD can help to no more than half of the population with people with PTSD, which are millions and millions and millions you know, across the world, right? If you think about that, that let's say one third of trauma-exposed people may develop post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a serious kind of dysfunction with a lot of fears and angers and and problems with intimacy and never feel safe in the world and always on alert, always hypervigilant. So the Israeli society, again, in another example about, you know, coming to full terms with it, are still very much behind on addressing PTSD among its um, soldiers. When I moved to the U.S. after the attacks of the 9-11, uh, Columbia University in New York recruited me to start leading, you know, a PTSD lab there, you know, a big center. What I've done since then, it's about 20 years also, I, I was fortunate enough to obtain funding in order to study the, the brain of people with PTSD, really going after why the brain of people with PTSD cannot complete processing the trauma, 
coming to terms with the trauma. What's wrong, right? And what we found is very specific areas in the brain that are not working well for people with PTSD. And if we know that, we can then develop new treatments in order to address specifically those programs. So I know it sounds a little bit technical and, you know, far away from um, war experiences of myself or others, but I always felt that that's for me, you know, an opportunity really to give back in a way that I am very fortunate to do. You know, earlier on in this podcast, we talked about the contrast between 1973, where the threat was external. In 2023, it feels like the challenge, the existential challenge is from within. What that that has made you feel about Israel now and, and actually the service you gave 50 years ago? I, I am similarly grieving, really. It was very painful for me to see that. And I, I know that I'm not alone, right? So... It's an awful feeling that we were not successful to take care of this, you know, young country, a young project and, and make it working and make it working for Jewish citizens, for Arab citizens. I mean, the fact that we are keeping under military control millions of people in the West Bank and we never solve, um, military conflicts between us and our neighbors, it's not only our problem. I'm, I'm aware to that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not naive, but I think that at least for my generation, and I think the Peace Now movement is a testimony for that. And also the demonstration now, at least a large part of them is a testimony for that. At least we, we are sincere and were sincere in our effort to mobilize the Israeli society towards some kinds of solutions. And then we need to deal with so many disappointments on the Palestinian front, especially. And in addition to that, you know, the awful, you know, breakdown between, between secular to religious people in Israel. It's awful. I mean, I live in New York, right? In New York, you go to Brooklyn and you see extremely orthodox Jews walking in the streets in, on Saturday and have no problem with cars, with other people that living in this neighborhood. Same with Yom Kippur. You know, there is not, you don't see this kind of willingness to go after people who don't believe what you believe in, in a way that is violent. You don't see that elsewhere. And to see your country struggling with those issues, it's heartbreaking for me, really. Well, we wish we could end on a more optimistic tone, but we really thank you for talking to us today. There's so much to, to learn from you and to, and to hear you talk about, and we really are uh, happy that you came on. Thank you, Val. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, amazing to look back on those events with someone who was there, someone who has thought about and wrestled with the legacy of it, the sort of human legacy of it, and, and thinking about the collective legacy as, as well as the sort of trauma, the scars that are carried around by the individuals like him who were there. A very sobering conversation. Yeah. And, and, and it really is that such an interesting vantage point. You know, we talk about 
war and the casualties and the people who died and victims and, and those who were injured, sometimes maybe about the the circle of the families that were tried to walk forward from this. But when you think of just a collective psyche of what it does, the, the trauma that kind of lives on in the, in the generations after and in the circles that are a wider circle, it's just something that, you know, when you send people to war, that, that is something that should be uh, taken under consideration. Yeah. And I realize one way or another, we've talked about the Yom Kippur War a fair bit on this yeah. podcast, Golda Meir and Helen Mirren. We talked with Matty Friedman about the famous Leonard Cohen tour in Yom Kippur. One way or another, it keeps coming back. It's a big part of the memory uh, there. And we've talked about it again now. And I have, I suspect we, we will find ourselves coming back to it. And um, we do have awards to hand out. I think we should uh, mix things up a little. And I think I might take the liberty of handing out the Chutzpah Award no. this week. How so that of you. you. So you can be the Mensch uh, nominator this time. Uh, the Chutzpah Award, I think since we're both in London, let's do a very London story, which is um, centres on the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. And the woman who wants to uh, have his job on behalf of the Conservative Party, Susan Hall, she's from the right of the party. She's uh, a candidate in that race. She's a member of the London Assembly, but she's said a few shocking things. This week, though, she said at a gathering uh, at the Conservative Party conference addressing Jews, she said um, that she knew that there was fear in the community of Sadiq Khan. And it's just wrong. And, you know, you cannot help but feel it's a horrible sort of dog whistle because Sadiq Khan is London's first Muslim mayor. As it happens... Sadiq Khan has extraordinarily warm relations with Britain's Jewish community. Indeed, he's a Labour politician. But in those very bruising years, which we talked about on here, 2015 to 2019, the years when Labour was under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, in that period, odd to say this, but I think the most popular politician of any kind, of any party, among the Jewish community in that period was probably Sadiq Khan. Uh, even though Labour in general was really unpopular among Jews, Sadiq Khan managed to carve this completely different relationship. And it was partly because uh, on literally the first morning he was elected as mayor in um, 2016, the very first thing he did was to go to a Holocaust memorial event, I think for Yom HaShoah. And he just constantly defended Jews in that very uh, bruising period and took his own line. And he's been absolutely assiduous. And you will not speak to anyone involved in a Jewish organization in London who does not essentially speak pretty positively and warmly about Sadiq Khan. So she was really wrong to say it. She picked the wrong target here. And I'm glad to say, you know, Jewish organizations, the main one, the board of deputies and others immediately said, no, not true. We've only got relationship of friendship and respect. So it's a chutzpah of Susan Hall to try and use Jews and their fear of anti-Semitism, particularly in that you know previous period, as a political football against a man who, as it happens, has been uh, has enjoyed very good relations with London's Jews. Um, I want to then pick on the Mensch Award, and since we're staying geographically in this area, I think that's okay. Can I uh, nominate? And we're after the Yom Kippur fast, so can I discuss <laughs> something that has to do with food? Is that okay? Always, always. <laughs> so we want to nominate Ireland's first kosher restaurant in decades. It's called Delhi. I think it's Delhi 613 or 613 for the mitzvot, but that is what it's called. It's getting rave reviews. There are out of 5 million, a population of 5 million, out of them about 2,700 
Jews. This, of course, is a restaurant not serving Jews alone. But that's a nice thing that they, after a long time, finally have a, uh, a, a new Jewish restaurant. No, it's an amazing idea. And uh, I love the idea of, you know, Leo Varadka, the prime minister, visiting for, what was it, Canadlich soup. I mean, just amazing. And uh, yeah, if we take Unholy on the road and it, we make it to Dublin, we will be there at Delhi 613. If you have enjoyed this, I know that people normally rate and review restaurants, but you can rate <laughs> and review Unholy on the platform uh, of your choice. And remember, we are always grateful. Lots of you have been doing it, and we are very thankful. Or you can send Jonathan matzo soup instead of rating. We shall say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Prima, Trom Atik. Next week, regular locations. Next thing that happens, Jonathan, is you're coming to visit my hood and not the other way around. I will give you a whole lecture about, well, you know everything, but never mind. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Johnny. And we will see you all next week. See you. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.